Good morning. Alan's going to lead us in prayer. Good morning, Father. Thank you very much for a beautiful Sabbath day that we can come together and learn more about you and your love for us. We so much appreciate that privilege to have that as on for Sabbath. Uh, be with Tim today as he talks about you, as we all have discussion about you. That's what it's all about, your character, the way you are, and your law of love. We so much appreciate it. Be with everybody in their prayers today. Uh, Miss Granada, as she's being deployed. Uh, be with every other member that's not here and bring them back safely. Thank you again for being who you are. Amen. Amen. We're starting our new quarterly, which is called The Christian Life. And the uh, first lesson of the quarterly this week is entitled Love. Before we actually get even into the first lesson, I want to read the introduction, at least a little bit out of the introduction to the quarterly. If you have your quarterly, you can follow along. I'm going to read the first three paragraphs there and then discuss a little about the thoughts expressed in these first three paragraphs. It says, one of the great 18th to 19th century thinkers, Pierre Laplace, uh, wrote a book about the motion of planets. He called it Celestial Mechanics, and he presented a copy of the book in person to Emperor Napoleon. Someone had told Napoleon beforehand that the book never mentioned God. The emperor took the book and said, Mr. Laplace, they tell me that you have written this large book on the systems of the universe and have never even mentioned its creator. Laplace unflinchingly responded, I have no need of that hypothesis. This story is a metaphor for what's been known as the modern era, an era in which logic, reason, and science have formed the foundation of all truth. According to this view, all reality can be reduced to formulas, to laws, and to scientific predictions. If it can't be explained through logic, reason, and science, it isn't real. In recent years, there's been a backlash against this thinking. People don't believe, and rightly so, that all reality can be explained in cold rationality alone. There's something about us that no formula, no test tube, no scientific law could ever capture. What are your thoughts about this idea expressed here? Any thoughts? Well, God made all the laws. I mean, you know, so... I don't, I don't understand what their point is. Trying to... Alan said God made all the laws. Do you all believe that any of the laws of nature, all the laws of nature were created by God? Yes. Okay. But how do you present that to someone who is dead set against that argument? I mean, we can, we can make that statement all day long and we can reference scripture, but the person that believes the Bible is simply an interesting uh, uh, book filled with allegories and parables and is a nice historical reference and who who is a you know a rational uh, logical See, that, that's I mean I, that's a great question Russell um, but that's not really even the, the direction the quarterly is going the quarterly is going away from that it's not going to the people who believe in the scientific laws and we can come back and talk about how do you reach those people I think those people are actually easier to reach than the people who have taken the position that you can't know and you can't understand God's ways aren't our ways his ways are so high so infinite that that truth and evidence and logic and reason are not to be brought to bear you just to believe because there's de declarative statements to tell us to believe yes uh, seems to me like you're saying you got to take a lot of things on faith here. That's what this is saying. Yeah. And with faith being defined as knowing something without... With, Some things you just can't support, you just got to believe it. And it seems like this is what it's saying. Yeah, faith is based on... It's like it's a little boy said, faith is, no, is believing what you know ain't so. <laughs> it seems like that's what it's saying. 
Yeah. Well, let's ask some questions about that. This whole idea about logic, reason, and science is, is not what it's all about. Um, do you think there is anything about God that is unreasonable? No. Ir- irrational? No. Illogical? No. Inconsistent? If something is beyond our comprehension, does that mean it's not scientific? Just because we can't comprehend it. If we can't understand something, does that mean it cannot be measured or tested or explained in rational terms just because we can't figure it out? No. You see, this is about hum- th- this this takes human ignorance and tries to flip that human ignorance onto God. And tries to dumb us down and to say that we shouldn't be growing in knowledge and truth and trying to understand. In the 15th century, the Black Plague killed over 40 million people in Europe. They had no idea about such things as bacteria, infections, vectors. And so they concluded wrathful God was punishing them. And they all had faith. And they did their penance and they did all the rituals they were supposed to do. Um, They were sure such things could never be explained scientifically. Now, are are we trying to lead our church down a path like that today? Should we be leading our church down a path like that today? No. Believing that because we are finite and have limited comprehension and knowledge, therefore, truth is not rational and not reasonable and not testable and not scientific and not explainable because we're limited in our understanding. I think that's somehow backwards thinking. Or should our attitude be that all truth is reasonable and scientific and understandable and explainable and testable? We're just currently too ignorant to even conceive of some of the possible explanations. But should we be striving as best we're capable with our finite minds to understand in in rational, reasonable terms. Think about some of the miracles of the Bible. Do you think there's a scientific explanation that can be understood through the laws that God designed of Jesus walking on the water? Do you think there's there's a scientific explanation for that? That it was happening in harmony with God's laws of nature beyond our current comprehension. Whether you want to talk string theory, whether you want to talk quantum mechanics, whether you want to talk some other source of energy. How about, can we take today matter and turn that matter into energy? Yes. We call that nuclear explosions, or nuclear energy. Uh, is there a scientific explanation about how, how God can take energy and turn it into matter? Yeah. Sure. Now, can we do it? Can we understand it? It's, not, it's beyond our comprehension, but does that mean it's outside of something that's rational, outside of something that's reasonable, outside of something that's based on constant laws that, if we were intelligent enough, could be tested? Does God want us to walk through life with blinders on, having the attitude, well, since it's beyond our ability to understand, we shouldn't even try. We should close our minds. We shouldn't advance in understanding. We should just take the 15th century approach and and diseases or wrathful actions of God, and we should just pray in faith that he'll heal? Or should we let God enlighten our minds as we're capable and use the, the laws of nature and science that he gives us in intelligent ways? So what does God want for us? To understand as much as we can and to keep growing with open minds, hungering to understand more? Or to take an attitude that we're not supposed to understand, so why try? What do you all think? 
that we should take the attitude that we're not supposed to understand, so why try? Oh, not the second one. Well, I'm going to read to you something from one of the founders of our church out of the uh, uh, little pamphlet called The Southern Work, April 27, written in 1907. It says, God intends... God intends that to the earnest seeker, the truths of his word shall be ever unfolding. The mysteries it contains are not such because God has sought to conceal truth. The inability to understand is not his purpose, but in our inability to understand. But it is impossible for any human mind to exhaust even one truth or promise of the Bible. One catches the glory from one point of view, another from another point, yet we can discern only gleamings. The full radiance is beyond our vision. It it will take eternity to unfold it all. Is it God's design that we should remain in ignorance? When it talks about the mysteries of God in the Bible, why are they mysteries? Because God intends to hide himself and hide the nature of his universe and the way he runs things? Or are they mysteries because we've believed lies? And lies darken the mind. Gross darkness covers the people. Darkness covers the earth. But Christ is a light which lightens all men. Is God wanting us to be children of light, children of understanding? Or does he want us to remain in darkness? So I, t- I take some issue with this idea that we should just, well, we have faith, we don't need evidence. This is one of the things that is getting Christianity such a bad name in society today. Um, and why we have failed, I think, to be able to promote more clearly the science of creation which, if, I mean, think this through. We all believe that God created, right? Yes. Well, humanity didn't evolve from lower life forms on this planet. Well, if that's true, which I believe it is, shouldn't the evidence support that? If you look for evidence, wouldn't evidence support the truth? Sure it does. But we've taken as a, as a broad group of Christians the idea, well, we don't need evidence because we have faith. When you have faith, you don't need evidence. Yes. So why do we need faith? Why does God emphasize that we, that we should have faith and exercise it? Okay, what is faith? Let's define it. What is it? Trust. Faith is believing in things unseen and not known. Where do we find that definition? I'm challenging the definition. That's not the definition of faith. Isn't it a way of trusting God? Oh, that's a different definition, isn't it? Trust. How many definitions are there? Yeah. There is this common vernacular used in society today where things have evolved over time and we have these definitions we attach through the system that aren't actually the meaning that comes from the word. For instance, atonement. Let's take that for a quick example. Atonement has the meaning, you look it up in the dictionary, it means appeasement, expiation, payment of some type of a debt. But that's not what the word originally meant in 1611 when the King James was translated. It, it meant Unification, oneness, reconciliation, at one meant, bringing two parties that are at odds back into unity. That's what it meant. But it evolved into something else. The word gay. Anybody remember the camp, Camp Cumbie Gay? Yeah, that camp, that camp had to change its name because the word gay changed meaning. The word faith has evolved in Christian vernacular to have a certain connotation that is not inherent in the word. In, in Hebrews where it says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. People take that as, well, see, we're supposed to believe without evidence. Well, the word substance is, uh, comes from the Greek word hypostasis. The first half is hypo, as in hypoglycemic, hypotensive, hypodermic, as in under or low. The last half, stasis, means standing. Translated into Latin, substance, as in subway, subterranean, submarine, as in under, stance, standing. Translated into English, faith is our understanding of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. 
Okay? And so how I would use the analogy to describe that kind of faith, which really is, comes from the Greek P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis, means trust. Today's English word trust connotes much more closely what faith is supposed to be in the, in the Bible word. So substitute when you read faith, substitute the word trust, and you'll get the connotation. And so think about a child's trust in a parent. Is the trust in a parent who's trustworthy, it's a key thing there, trustworthy parent, parent who's been loving and kind and gracious, is the trust that the child has in that parent based on evidence or based on no evidence? evidence. Now, if the parent were to say to the child, hey, uh, while you were at school today, I bought you a present and put it in my closet, go get it. Does the child go based on any physical evidence or substance of the present? No. But is there evidence of the parent's trustworthiness? See, our trust is not in the presence. Our trust is in our parent. Now, the question is, has God given overwhelming evidence of his existence, his reliability, and his trustworthiness? Yes. Our trust is not in our heavenly presence, the things we hope for, life eternal, crowns of glory, mansions in heaven, new heaven, new earth. These are the presence in the closet we can't see. But our trust is not in those. Our trust is in the one who promised. Okay? Even then we can't fully comprehend how he's going to bring those presents about. We know that he has given evidence of his trustworthiness. So our trust in him is based on the evidence of who he is. Yes, yes. Um, there, there's a tension here, too. I, I think his word gives us the evidences all the way through of why we can trust him. We see his promises fulfilled again and again and again throughout that history. And yet there's also times where... We don't have necessarily the scientific evidence we would like to have or the um, external evidence we would like to have for some of the things he tells us is going to happen. Uh, the flood, for example. If, if there was no rain prior to the flood from a scientific viewpoint, from a viewpoint of analogy, they would have no idea that, that this was something even possible. They had not seen something like that before. So in that particular case, faith in God's word alone was the only thing that could guide them in, in knowing something was going to happen and knowing how he led in the past as well. So I think there's a there's a bit of a tension sometimes between what we see in the Word of God, the evidence, the evidences upon which we we uh, build our faith uh, in God, and then knowing that we can trust Him when we don't have necessarily that evidence. In hand but do you agree that our faith in God is based on evidence of His trustworthiness? Okay, and then when we trust him, he says stuff like you're saying that we don't necessarily understand. For instance, think about your spouse. All of you are married and you have a loving, trustworthy spouse or a parent that you love. And you're walking along and, and, and you hear your spouse say to you, get down now. If you trust your spouse, do you, do you just drop? And then as soon as you drop and after rock goes flying over your head or something and you didn't see the rock, do you get up and say, well, I'm just going to take that on faith? Or do you look to your spouse and say, why did you tell me to get down? Do you then look for explanation? You trust and you do it, but you then look for explanation. See, God doesn't want to keep us in ignorance. We may do things we don't understand, but God is wanting as soon as we're capable. Remember he said to his disciples, I have much to tell you, but you can't now bear it. I want to tell you. I'd like to lo open your minds, but you can't handle it. Amen. In his time, not ours. <laughs> in his time, not ours? That would make it sound like that the, 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 the limiting factor is him. The limiting factor is us. We can't handle it. We're closed-minded. We're not able to understand. He wants to bring us along so much. For You know, right now, it's his will to appear here in this room and be with us and take us all home. He would like to take us home today. How many thinks he would like to wait another thousand years? 
He wants to take us home today. Why doesn't he come? Tells us in Peter. He's not slow in keeping his promises, but he can't come now because we're so not ready for it. Isn't that just what I said? It's in his time, not ours. He, 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 we're not ready for it. We don't know when that is, but he does. But why are we not ready? Because he's limiting his willingness to heal and reveal in truth or because we're resistant to what he's trying to do? That's also true, yes. We're resisting his work. Yes. We're holding up barriers. And what kind of things hold up barriers? What is it is the barrier to love flowing in our hearts? Lies. Lies. Love does not flow where lies about God abound. Think about married couples. If you believe your spouse is cheating on you, and it's not true. Somebody's told you a lie and you're believing a lie. Does that obstruct the flow of love in your heart? Yes. Okay. Lies retained about God slow the progression. That's why you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth opens the heart for the flow of love. And when the flow of love comes in, we get transformed. We become more like Christ. This is what he's waiting for. And the devil is the father of lies. And so lies perpetuate and permeate Christianity about God. And so this is our, 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 our job, our privilege, to take the truth to the world. When the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, he will come. What gospel? Do you, think there's, do you think there's a nation on earth who hasn't heard the name Jesus Christ? I, I don't think there's any nation on earth that hasn't had somebody at least communicate the words Jesus Christ. I mean, that's been taken. What hasn't been taken is the truth about God. We've taken the pagan version. The version of an angry, wrathful God who must be appeased by the blood of his Son. That's the version we've taken to the world. Not the version that God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. The God so loved the world, he gave his Son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one, for God so loved the world. I mean, this is not the version we've taken. If God is for you, who can be against you? So, back to the lesson then. It says something really good in Sabbath's lesson. It says in the... In the uh, Bottom paragraph, God is love. Whatever else God is and whatever else he has done, he is and is doing and will do, everything is a manifestation of his love. This love is, a, is as comforting as it is difficult to comprehend. God's love far exceeds what human beings usually label as love, which is sometimes a mere shadow feeling or temporary infatuation that's often mixed with selfishness and greed. God does not just have love or show love. He is love. This is exactly right. God is love. Well said. Um, in Sunday's lesson, somebody read that first paragraph for us. We need to eat. We need to eat and drink in order to stay alive. Without liquid to drink or food to eat, we come to an end soon. But in order to live in any real sense of the word, we also need love. Life without love is a subhuman kind of existence. There is a built-in need in us to receive love. We need the love of parents. We need the love of family and friends. We need to be part of a loving community. But just as much as we need to receive love, we also need to give love. We are not truly human if we cannot love. But let's be clear. True love does not begin with us. The capacity for love is created in us by our Creator. A couple of things first. Let's take the lead of our quarterly how it started that paragraph. What happens to people who refuse to eat and refuse to drink? Okay, and if we follow along that, then what happens to people who refuse to love or refuse God's healing love in their life? Then why do we say that people who refuse God's love, that God, in order to be just, must use his power to kill them? If people refuse to eat and refuse to drink, will God have to kill them? You notice the dichotomy there. Why do we say it? Because Satan wants to destroy love. 
And love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. So teachings that suggest God must inflict death, suffering, torture upon his people who refuse to love him actually sets up barriers to love and prevents the very healing God wants to provide. Think that through. Your spouse loves you and comes to you and says, look, I love you. I do all these good things for you. I I work to bring home money. I I, I buy presents for you. I give you foot rubs. I I do all this good stuff because I love you. And if you ever stop loving me while you're sleeping, I'm going to pour gas on you and light you on fire. (laughs) And if you believe they meant it, what would happen to love in your life? See, love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. There is no, there's no, any bit of coercion on God's government. Coercion is only found in Satan's government. But yet, this is commonly taught in Christianity. This is what, this is why the gospel hasn't gone to the world yet. Because the message that goes to the world is, Jesus died for your sins to pay your debt to the Father, and if you accept his payment, you can be saved. But if you don't, God will torture you in hell. That's not the gospel. That's a barrier to the gospel because suddenly now we love Jesus and we want his protection because we're scared to death of the Father who can torture us from hell. in hell. Love can't flow where lies are retained. We have to present the truth to set people free. I received the following email along the same lines about love, freedom, so forth from a guy named John Nash from an email he got from Stand Up, Stand Out, uh, God Space by a guy named Tom Wheeler. And he first starts by quoting 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. Evil is easy. If it weren't, it wouldn't be so popular. On the battlefield, on the playground, at the movies, evil is glamorous. Evil is fun. Evil means big bucks. Standing up against evil, now that takes creativity and genuine guts. Everybody wants to save their skin. When Paul wrote, after all, no one has ever hated his own body, Ephesians 5.29, he wasn't kidding. Until we've been pushed beyond despair, we'll do anything to keep going in the face of evil, no matter the compromise, body or soul. Evil is second nature, and so ingrained that it's easy to forget that it truly is our second nature. God created us noble, loving, wise, but we swallowed the bitter pill, so shrewdly sugar-coated, and ever since we've either battled or embraced the buzz. If evil is easy, if evil is big business, what does it take for some, someone to stand up, speak out, and defy the power? What makes people willing to stick out their necks? Samuel and Pearl Oliner uh, decided to find out. They studied people who risked their lives during World War II to rescue Jews. They wanted to know why, despite the authoritarian environment, they didn't just toe the line. The Oliners discovered that those Courageous people all had some, something major in common. Their parents had not physically punished them. Instead of spanking, their parents talked things out with them, encouraging them to think for themselves. Rescuer parents reasoned rather than threatened. Eva Fogelman wrote in Conscience and Courage, Rescuers of the Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, instead of motivating their kids by fear of punishment, they taught them to think things through and to do the right thing because it was the right thing. So social psychologist Martin Hoffman uh, has extensively studied what makes people compassionate. Hoffman found that parents who explained rules and used inductive reasoning instead of harsh punishment tend to have children who care for and care for and about others. After all, parents who voluntarily relinquish the use of force in favor of reasoning send their children a message about how to how the powerful should treat the weak. Evil is easy, but love is eternal. 
And if you'd like to read more about the Samuel Oliner story, you can find it on the website. I've put it in our notes. And he talks about his experience. Samuel Oliner was a Jew. And in his experience, he, his entire family was, was killed. He escaped by, uh, when they came and uh, took them all out of their home in Poland, he would happen to be up on the roof hiding. And so he didn't go. And he went to a, a, a family friend that were Protestant. And this woman, as a child, dressed him up and sent him to Catholic school. And he learned, uh, learned how to say Our Father and Hail Mary. And, and he pretended to be a Catholic through the war. And uh, thus he was not killed in the war. But his story is online. You can read about it. And in his words, this is his own words from his website. It says, who are these people who put the welfare of others alongside their own? They are deeply empathetic. We found a clear correlation between empathy and altruistic behavior. Helpers simply could not stand by and see others suffer. We also found that the altruists, unlike bystanders, had internalized the ethic of caring and social responsibility they learned from their parents and significant others. As children, they were likely to have been disciplined by reasoning and taught to consider the consequences of their behavior. The capacity for love and compassion was yet another important characteristic as well as a sense of self that tells them that they can succeed at some task, even dangerous ones. Ecumenically inclusive religions or spiritual beliefs, such as regarding all people as children of the same God, worthy of protection and love, are other important factors associated with helping. So what do you all think about this idea of reasoning? God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, they're red like crimson, they're made like wool. See, there are some that teach that we are to just believe without reasoning. Yes? I, I think that's a very important and vital point. If you have a parent with growing children, you know, know that. You want to come around and have the reason, their reason understanding your requirements. But I've always been intrigued by the fact that, um, that first of all, children can't obey, they can't understand. All you can do is love them. Um, and as a parent, that teaches you must love them before they obey. But on the other hand, uh, the Spirit of Prophecy has a remarkable quote about before children can learn to obey, uh, before children can learn to reason, they can learn to obey. And if you look at our parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, the test with the tree of, of knowledge and good and evil, there wasn't a particular explanation. It was about obedience and it was about authority, and it was... That seemed to be the first and the fundamental lesson. Well, let's, let's challenge that because I think that's actually not the case. Were we not told that, that God came and talked to them in the cool of the day every day? Are we not told that angels came and gave explicit explanations about the whole controversy and the war going on in heaven? And what was it that led to the taking of the fruit? Was the fruit the actual sin or was the taking of the fruit the symptom of believing the lies about God? But all that is true, and yet we know that the fruit itself was not poisonous. There was no scientific reason, no uh, rational explanation other than... Let's talk this through. Let's give the science behind it, okay? God is love. Love is life. The law of love is the law of life. All life is constructed, built upon this principle of love. Uh, we see this, Paul says in Romans 1.20, that, that uh, God's invisible qualities, his divine nature, are seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. If you do value the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White says all over the place that the law of love is the law of life, that God's government is built upon the law of love, that, that happiness and health are dependent upon harmony with the law of love. The law of love is not simply an emotion. It is a principle, a design construct that, you, that life is designed to operate upon. And we see this in nature. 
The, the, the waters of the ocean give their waters to the clouds, which reign over the lands, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, flowing back to the ocean, and never any circle of giving, which brings life. If a body of water separates from it, it stagnates, and everything in it dies. You give away with every breath you take carbon dioxide to the plants, giving freely. This is the principle of love, other-centered giving. Uh, the plants give back oxygen to you. If you decide, I'm not going to be part of the circle of giving, I'm going to be a taker. My body makes it, I have a right to it. You can't have it. Well, the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. Through all of nature, I could go example, example, example. Electricity, electrons flow from one atom to another in what we call a current, electrical current. But they can only flow if there's a complete circle we call a circuit, an electric circuit. When you throw the switch, it breaks the circuit. Electrons cannot flow. Well, this is not true for just the lights in this room. It's true for the electrical circuits of your brain. They can only flow in complete circles. And thus, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the life is in the blood, and it circles. And so when they confess sin on the head of the animal, they cut the circulation, showing sin severs the circle of life. In our economy, for an economy to be healthy, the money has to be in circulation. circulation. If the money's out of circulation, the economy dies. Every living system, this is a law. It is a testable law. You can see this law. And thus, the lifeblood of an animal is its physical blood. The lifeblood of an economy is money. The lifeblood of an appliance is electricity. The lifeblood of the universe is love. Now, what broke that, that circle of love? Lies believed break the circle of love. As soon as you believe the lie, something inside you changes. And then broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I don't want to trust you, God, because I believe you're like Satan says. You're trying to keep me down. And because I can't trust you to watch out for me, I've got to watch out for myself. And so then they take the fruit. So the action of taking the fruit was just the symptom of the fact that their nature had been changed from one of other-centered trust and love to selfishness and fear. And that's why Jesus said, you say, if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Acts of sin are symptoms of sick hearts. You say, if you get murder, you commit sin. I say, if you hate your brother in your heart, the good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. The evil brings forth evil, the evil stored up in him. The, the symptoms of acts of sin are symptoms of a heart that operates on fear and selfishness rather than a heart that operates on trust and love. And that is what was happening in Eden. Well, I don't want to belabor the point. You made the point very nicely that it was a test about love and trust, but initially you were saying it was about reason, that they were to, that, that, that we are to understand all the requirements that are given to us. And I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that command not to eat the fruit was based on God's authority and no other apparent reason, much as the Sabbath commandment. I mean, it was, it was said, in the day you eat, you will surely die. And we're told that angels came and told them and gave them explicit explanations about this stuff. If you value the spirit of prophecy. And it says that God came and spoke with them in the cool of the day, every day. What do you think they were talking about? Well, the spirit of prophecy makes the point that the fruit itself was not poisoned. Right. That's right. So much as the seventh day, we, it's good for humans to rest one day out of seven. In fact, that it's the seventh day is an arbitrary decision or request on the part of Okay, that's, that's what we've been told, that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test. Actually, that's not true either. The Sabbath is, was given for a reason. See, arbitrary means there's no reason. And let's talk about the reason for the Sabbath. What was happening in the universe the week that this planet was created? There was already a war going on between the, the Satan's lies about God and the truth that God was revealing. Now, God has power. He could have taken the approach... I'm the one with the power. Everybody get in line or else I'm going to smack you and wipe you out. Now, if you had taken that approach, what would have happened to love in the universe? Destroyed love. Satan's, Satan's 
infection of fear of God would have spread. More people would have been rebelling against him. He couldn't take that approach. So what does God do instead? He begins to give evidence. As the angels are waging back and forth, who are you going to believe? Uh, you're going to believe God? You're going to believe uh, Lucifer? God says, let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let the land come forth. Let the herb-bearing trees come forth. And, and now notice this. You're an angel in heaven. Lucifer, who's your friend, comes to you and begins lying to you about God. What evidence do you have that Lucifer is lying? Up to this point in universal history, what had Lucifer ever done that would show that he's untrustworthy? Nothing. You have no evidence that Lucifer is lying. You can't tell. You can't read his heart and mind. So God begins giving evidence. And think about the amount of power it took to create the solar system. This is an incredible display of might and power. So if you're this angel processing this through and, and you see God creating, Lucifer is there going, see, I told you guys, he's powerful. He's got power. Now, he, he's trying to intimidate you. He's trying to say, look, if you don't step in line, he's going to wipe you out and he's going to replace you with new beings. Look, he just made two new smart, intelligent beings down there. And if you don't do what he says, he's going to wipe you out. In the context of this war, God says, universe, you've heard the allegations against us. You've seen the evidence we've given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. No coercion, no pressure. You think it through for yourself. Come to your own conclusions. What does it say about God that in the context of an assault on his right to rule, rather than forcing, using his power to force beings to bow, he instead creates this day where beings are left free to think for themselves. The fact that the Sabbath exists is proof that Satan is a liar and God will not coerce you. It's proof that God is love and the three, and why is it holy? What are the three elements of holiness? Truth, love, freedom. And the Sabbath was, was given in the context of presenting the truth in love, leaving people free. So Sabbath observers are people who internalize that character. And they go out, as it says in Ephesians 4, we present the truth in love. And we leave people free. Which is just the opposite of the beast system and the mark of the beast, which no one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. Coercive power being brought to bear. So the Sabbath is not given arbitrarily. The Sabbath was given in the context of a war. The Sabbath was never in existence before creation of this planet. It was never needed until the war. But the Sabbath will be eternal for all eternity future. Because the rest of the universe we will be reminded every week that with God we're free. He doesn't abuse His power. He doesn't coerce. This is not arbitrary. This is evidence of who God is. So I'll hand over here. Wendell. Matthew 10, 28, uh, Christ says, Don't fear those who kill the body, but kill the, the he who kill the body and soul in hell. We often misinterpret that and ascribe that to be God. Right. You know? That's exactly right. And it, it, it's further twisting by Lucifer of the truth to ascribe to God his own characteristic. God wants us to understand and reason with him. It's only when the lies about him are removed that the Holy Spirit can fully reproduce in us what he wants us to be. And then, it says in, in, in Revelation chapter 7, hold, 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 the angel of the east, the four winds, the angel holding the four winds, till the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. He's waiting for us to be so subtle into the truth, intellectually and spiritually, we can't be shaken. And then the four winds will loose. And then we will be able to be those witnesses for him from which is a multitude of every nation, kindred, tribe, and people will come. Yes, right here. It's easy to uh, think with an adult and reason with an adult, but what do you do with a two-year-old who doesn't have much logic? How do you teach them by reason? Yeah, that's a great point. Two-year-olds have their own reasoning capacities, but they're limited. 
And so do we just because they can't reason the level of an adult, do we give no reason or no explanation? Or do we reason to the level they're capable of comprehending? Do we just say, don't do it? I mean, this, is, this is how I grew up in the church, I'll just tell you. As I grew up in the church, I asked questions. And my mother's over there, she'll tell you. I asked questions starting at a very early age. Why? 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 At a very early age. And the answer I was given, you guys can believe that about me. And the answer I was given over and over again, I won't say by my mom, but by, but especially in school. When I was in school, was at five, six, seven, I'd ask, why? 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 And the answer? The Bible says so. Sister White says so. God says so. Why? Why does he say so? Well, he just does, and you better do it. Well, what happens if you don't? Oh, I remember the recording angel story when I was a kid. You know, children's story, fun time at church. Go down front this particular week. Here comes somebody in a white robe with a little halo and a white clipboard and gold pen. And, and uh, the story goes that uh, you've got this angel following you everywhere you go. And if you uh, and everything you do is being written down, and, and you're going to have to face that in the judgment. You're going to get smoked. I had nightmares after that story. Why? Why? Well, he just does. What if you have an watch sitting on your table and the child is two years old and goes to touch it? How do you stop them from doing that? Yeah, there are times when the child can't understand. There's no question about it. When your child is two and you take him to get vaccines, you may try to explain, but the child will not get it, will not understand. There's an obedience factor there somewhere on Yeah, but the child won't obey either. You will have to hold your child while they get that vaccine. Okay. The child won't. The child at two years old will not obey as the doctor comes towards a needle. I don't care what you think, they will not. They will run. Even with you sitting there, they will run. Okay? You will have to forcibly hold them. Okay? But do we, do we hold a two-year-old accountable in a situation like that? Do we find them guilty for their disobedience when they run from the doctor with the needle? Do we, do we, would we, would we enforce and inflict punishment upon them because they're trying to run from the doctor with a needle at two? We would not. Okay, And we have this twisted idea that if we can't understand something, and in ignorance but with a good heart who loves and trusts our mother. See, a child running at age two from a doctor with a needle is not a child that doesn't love their parent. But we have this idea that if, we, if, we're, if we're a human and we're in that same position, that somehow that God will now have to punish us. You got to come back to that antique watch, though. Stop them. How are you going to stop them from not touching that thing without some kind of? Well, you put it in a cabinet <laughs> with a lock. <laughs> okay. No. No. But but there. No. There. There is a place. There is a place that you do discipline your child. There is a place you do discipline because to not discipline is not loving. The act. But but the motive behind it is why are you trying to discipline the child? Because you're concerned for the watch. You're not concerned for the watch. You're concerned for the lack of self-control in the child. And you want to teach the child to internalize self-governance and self-control. You could care less about the watch. It's going to melt one day in the great fires, okay? But what you care about is the eternal interest of that child. But what happens is we do get our values off and we care more about the watch than the child. How could you touch my watch? Bam! And what does the child learn? <laughs> that you get punished and then those and then because parents stand in God's place to children. I want you all to know if you're a parent, you're a parent, you stand in God's place to that child. You absolutely do. And when you represent God in these ways, it makes barriers to the child ever coming to know God. And this is why kids that, adults that I see that have been abused as kids all have serious God construct problems. All have God's construct problems. If they've been abused by their parents as kids, 
They have twisted and distorted ideas about God, if they even believe in God still at all. Many of them reject the God idea altogether. And so we have a lot of work to do. Man, there's so many good things in this lesson. We only have 15 minutes left. We have to keep going. Um, yes. Oh, yes, Christy. You read that quote about being sealed and then his question about the tree in the garden. Yes. Um, wasn't the tree also to help them develop character because they had to make a choice? That's beautifully said. Without them deciding to go one way or the other, they weren't settled. That's exactly right. The tree was put there for two purposes, as I understand it. One, to protect them, because Satan couldn't hop follow them anywhere. He was restricted to the tree. They could go free around this planet without harassment, like you and I can't. We can be harassed pretty much everywhere. But the two in the garden, only at the tree could Satan approach them. But secondly, without that opportunity for them to weigh it out for themselves, to draw their own conclusions, to think through the allegations, to see the evidence of who God is that they spent with time with every day. And when Satan said, did God save all the fruits of the trees you cannot eat? If they were thinking and reasoning, they would go, wait a minute. No, God didn't say that. We can eat of everything. Satan's trying to give this picture of restrictive God. Can't eat anything around here. Man, you must be starving. Rather than abundance. He's given us everything. Just one place he's asked us not to, to partake. You see? But they didn't, she didn't reason. She was deceived. She was tricked. But yes, it was there for the purpose, for them to weigh it out. Because only as we freely choose the right and reject the wrong, do we become settled into the truth about God. They would have never been settled had they not, in this context of this war, just like the angels in heaven, prior to Satan's allegations, those angels who had been perfect for who knows how many millennia, millennia were not settled. They were only settled once the issues became clear and those who chose the truth settled in on God's side. Isn't the tree itself evidence of God's character? It is. That it was there? Yes, absolutely. All right, Monday's lesson. Um, boy, we have so much to talk about. And it's talking about things in the Old Testament that describe a God of love. And it gives four examples from the Old Testament of creation, the, sa- the Sabbath, the promised Messiah, and prophecy. And I thought those were kind of the easiest ones. I was looking at the bottom of the pink where it brought up the idea of all the killing in the Old Testament. How is the killing in the Old Testament revelation of God's character of love? When God told them to kill people, men, women, children, babies, cattle, and everything, how did that show God's character of love? Well, hadn't he, um, hadn't he promised to drive them out himself? Didn't the children of Israel demand to be involved? So number one, what was God's preferred method? What was his preferred method to, for, for if God had his way, what would have happened with the, with the children of Israel's relationship with the nations around if God had his way? Conversion. Conversion. They would have been friends. There would have been unity of love. There wouldn't have been anybody dying. They would all have been one. Why did that not happen? Well, because both sides, both sides here, children of Israel were, were pretty much, you know, have hardness of heart, but also the nations around didn't want to have anything to do with God of Israel. So, so except for a few, Ruth did, Rahab did. There were a few that converted, but the majority didn't. Um, second one then, after that, not conversion, was I'll, dry, send the, I'll send the hornet before, I'll send the pestilence before, I will drive them out bit by bit, and you will occupy bit by bit. That was his second plan, but that didn't happen. And so the children of Israel insisted in participation. So, so then how, with this, with this process of children of Israel killing everybody, well, how could this be an, an act of love? Number one, we have to remember God is working to bring eternal life to humans, eternal life to the human race, not a few years of sinful life. 
Okay? He's not working so you can have, you can eat the right foods so you can live an extra 10 years in sin. That's not what he's working to do. He's working to bring eternal life. And in order to bring eternal life, that's why the the Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who destroys the body, but body and soul. He's looking for something eternal. And in order to bring eternal life, the Messiah had to come. Satan knew the Messiah was promised in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, the, the, the woman's seed is going to crush his head. Do you think that Satan was working in Old Testament to try and do everything he could to prevent Jesus from ever coming to planet Earth? How could he do that? What would be his strategy to prevent Jesus from coming? To destroy anybody who would work with God and win everybody 100% to Satan's side so there's not one person working with God on earth. It got really close at one point. At one point, there was only one righteous man left on the whole earth. The avenue through which the Messiah would come had got extremely narrow. So what did God do? I'm going to just, because I hate these people, I'm going to make them pay. Or I'm going to put them to rest in the grave to keep open the avenue. Now, think this through. Did anybody die in the flood, die eternally, or are they all coming back? So all he did is put them in suspended animation. He just literally suspended them in time. He did not end their life. And we're told uh, that when they come back, they come back with the exact same train of thoughts that went into the grave. He just acted to keep open the avenue for the Messiah. So we see God doing this. Working to keep open the channel because he's wanting to save and to heal. This is an act of love. He's working to restore. What about God not, God is not constrained by time. He feels the pain of evil throughout history equally at all times because he's not constrained by time. What would have happened seriously if Israel would have taken God up on his instructions, even in his third, third plan here, and would have wiped out all those rebellious nations around back at what? 4,000 years ago. I don't know what the exact population was in the Mideast right then, but how many people might have been killed? Lots. Millions, you think? Were there millions back then? Anybody know? No, we have, there weren't millions back then. A few hundred thousand? A few hundred thousand would have been killed. And if they would have done it and then established a nation as God wanted, not infected by all the pagan intermarriages and stuff that kept going on plugging this and, fi- and, and fulfilled the purposes, do you think that for over the course of time there would have been a lot less pain, suffering, and death? We can't just look at it at a point in time. We have to look at it over the course of time where God is looking. Even if they would have done and wiped all those hundred thousand people out or several hundred thousand people out, for the last four thousand years we may have had peace in the Middle East. But we're still having what's going on in the Middle East today because they didn't. So there's a lot of ways to look at this to see God's hand of love trying to reduce pain, trying to reduce suffering, trying to reduce death, trying to bring healing and bring restoration. We have to look at Tuesday very quickly. Tuesday's lesson, it says in the top, it says, Why did Jesus Christ come to the world? Why did he have to suffer and was it necessary for him to die on the cross? And why will he come again and restore this world to its original unblemished condition? Was there no other way? And if not, why does it take so long before the sin problem is fully dealt with? Now get this. We are in no position to answer these questions. Huh? Does God want us to know why Christ came? Yes. I mean, this is that same approach. Don't think. Don't ask questions. Just take it on faith. Close your mind down. Don't reason. Well, you're a sub-intelligent creature, so you can't answer this. It's ludicrous. 
If God didn't want his intelligent creatures to understand why, he wouldn't have even given Satan and Lucifer the chance to carry on a rebellion in the first place. He'd have said, he's wrong, I'm right, make your choice. Those who side with him, gone. Because you can't figure it out, you can't think, you can't reason, I'm not going to give you evidence. Truth doesn't mean anything. Truth can't set you free because you can't understand why. This is twisted. We were created in God's image with individuality, ability to think and to reason. We're not to be mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. We're to think and we're to develop the capacities that God gives us the ability. Ever growing, ever reaching. How can we ever be the mature Christians that have by faith developed, the, by practice, the ability to discern the right from the wrong? Hebrews 5.14. I mean, if we don't think, God wants us to reason and think. So, very quickly, if we can just go through the high points, why did Jesus have to come and die? Three Bible texts that tell you why. Hebrews 2.14, to destroy him who holds the power of death. 2 Timothy 1.9 and 10, to destroy death. And 1 John 3.8, to destroy the devil's work. Three things he came to destroy. To destroy the devil, to destroy the devil's work, and to destroy death. This is why he had to come. What is the devil's power? It says in Hebrews 2.14, he took took upon himself... Human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Well, lies. You see, life eternal, John 17, 3, is knowing God. If life eternal is knowing God, what's eternal death? Not Not knowing God. So the devil's power is the lies that he tells that we believe that keep us from knowing God. It severs us from him. So Jesus came to reveal the truth about God that set us free and to restore us back to unity with God. Um, What is the basis of death? Because he came to destroy death. What's the basis of death? Yes, which is broken law of... Remember the law of love we already talked about at the beginning is the circle of life. It's the principle life's designed on. Severing that law, the law of love, the only consequence is ruin and death unless it's restored. He came to restore the law of love back in the human species. Did Christ live the perfect life of love? In a human nature? Yes. He restored the species back to the circle of love. He destroyed the devil's work to cut us off. And then the third thing he did, destroy the devil's work. This, listen to this. Lift this out of Lift Him Up, page 48. The life of Christ is to be revealed in humanity. Man was the crowning act of creation of God, made in the image of God and designed to be a counterpart of God. Satan has labored to obliterate the image of God in man and to print upon him his own image. What has Satan labored or worked to do? Destroy the image of God in man. Christ, it says, came in, in John, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the devil's work, which is to restore God's image in man, is what Christ came to do. Did he do it? Did Christ perfectly restore God's image in mankind in his perfect life, death, and resurrection? Yes. yes. This is why Christ had to come. Did he have to die on a cross? He had to die. Did he have to die on? Did he have to die? Yes. Did he have to die on a cross? No. 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 He didn't have to be on a cross, but he had to die. Um, it says. Uh, it says if he didn't die on a cross, then what? I had this question emailed to me the other day. Well, if Christ didn't die on a cross, if the Jews would have accepted Christ as a savior, if they would, he would have believed in them. Well, well then, then what? what? What would Christ have done if they didn't crucify him? Well, what is it that brings death? An infliction and an execution by a powerful authority or by being severed from the circle of love. So Christ would have taken our place and allowed himself to be severed from the circle of love without using his power to stop it. Now where did that take place? 
ultimately at the cross, but prior to that. In Gethsemane. It says right there, Mark Mark 14. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and uh, Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he says, my soul is overwhelmed, sorrowing to the point of death. And then he was about to die. The father in Luke, it says in Luke 22, sent an angel from heaven to revive him. If that angel hadn't come, what would have happened to Christ in Gethsemane? And who beat him, who tortured him, who crucified him? In Gethsemane. Nobody in Gethsemane. Nobody. He was severed from the circle of love. But that wasn't enough. He had to do more. There was something more to be taught. But I'm going to read to you in closing. We'll close with, with Desire of Ages, page 690, 691, where, where she describes this process. As three times he'd uttered that prayer. Three times humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. Why must we perish if left to ourselves? Because God would be forced to kill us and we'd live eternally ever after in our sin if he would just leave us alone? Or because unremedied sin severs from the circle of love, which is the law of life, and we cannot live in sin? Which is it? There's this idea that if Christ didn't die and pay the Father, the Father's just up there just chomping at the bits to kill us. No. We cannot live in sin. Sin is incompatible with life. Life is based on the law of love. So the human race would die if Christ didn't come and restore this, this species back to the law of love. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin, the woes, the lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate, and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood, that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven, where all is purity, happiness, and glory, to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression. And he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Having made the decision, he fell dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. Dying to the ground. Now, why is he dying here? Is, is, is he being tortured at this point? Is he being physically beaten? Is he being crucified? No. Why is he dying? Because the law of love, he accepted our position. He took our infirmities, our iniquity, our sick condition upon himself. And our condition severs from the circle of love, which is the law of life. He is being separated from his unity with his father. And outside of that, there is no life. He's dying. Where now were his disciples to place their hands tenderly beneath the head of the master and and bathe that brow? But God suffered with his son. Angels beheld the Savior's agony. They saw their Lord enclosed by legions of satanic forces. His nature weighed down with a shuddering, mysterious dread. There was silence in heaven. No harp was touched. Could mortals have viewed the, ma- the amazement of the angelic host as in silent grief they watched the Father separating his beams of light, love and glory from his beloved son. They would have better understand how offensive in his sight is sin. Why is sin so offensive? Because it makes him mad and, oh, you broke my rules, I'm going to have to get you. Or because sin cuts us off from the one who loves us. Think about this, parents. What is it that offends you if your child is living with drugs or alcohol? Is it, well, they're not keeping the health rules I taught them. Or is it that drugs and alcohol are destroying your child? Yeah. The world's unfallen and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest as the conflict drew to its close. Where is the conflict drawing to its close? 
in Gethsemane, Satan and his confederacy of angels, the legions of apostasy, of apostasy, watched intensely as this great crisis in the work of redemption. The powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come from to Christ's thrice-repeated prayer. Angels had longed to bring relief to the vine sufferer, but this might not be. No way of escape was to be found for the Son of God. In this awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the heavens opened, a light shone forth from amid the stormy darkness of, at the crisis hour. And the mighty angel who stands in God's presence, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hands, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance of his father's love. He came to give him power of the uh, power to the divine human suppliant. He pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as a result of his suffering. I'm going to skip down. Christ's agony did not cease, but his depression and discouragement left him. The storm had in no wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet its fury. He came forth calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested upon his blood-stained face. He had borne that which no human being could ever bear, for he had tasted the suffering of death for every man. And who had crucified him there? No. Notice the issue. Notice what's going on. The circle of love is the law of life. Sin, believing the lies about God, separate us from that circle. Christ came to destroy all the work the devil has done, the lies about God that keep us separate, live the perfect life of love in his human nature, and restore God's character perfectly into the human species. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much that you have given us all the evidence of your trustworthiness, ultimately reaching its pinnacle in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. May our minds be cleared. May the lies and distortions we've grown up with be removed. May we see more clearly your character, your nature, your methods. May your Spirit write your law in our hearts and minds that we can live the life of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen.